0: Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, the opinions that are offered on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its faculty, staff, or employees. And any legal discussions we have are not intended to be legal advice for individual legal situations. If one of our listeners has a legal problem, it's imperative that they speak to an attorney, acquaint them with all of the facts, and work to get the best legal advice available. Our guest today is the estimable Philip Zuber of the 100-year-old law firm Sasser, Claggett, and Booker. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you. You were not 100 years old, but the firm is. Could you tell us
1: a little bit about its history? Yes. It dates back to Lansdale Sasser, who uh, eventually became a congressman from 1940 to 1952, but before that. He was a uh, leading light in uh, Upper Marlboro regions, then became kind of the, the anchor by firm lore. If a clerk in the courthouse wanted to hire a new employee, they had to send them down the street to Mr. Sasser to get his approval. So he kind of was, uh, at least by lore, kind of owned Upper Marlboro and so forth. And really the name continues, but we no longer have a sasser and we no longer have a claggett, we no longer have a booker, but the sassers and the claggets were kind of the landed gentry in, a, in Prince George's County going back to colonial times.
0: It appears they didn't successfully stymie the British long ago when they crept up through Upper Marlborough, did they?
1: Well, they didn't, but Hal Claggett, who was the claggett in the name, has a farm, had a farm, in Upper Marlborough and invited firm members on occasion to the farm. And he, on my first visit as a relatively young lawyer, he took me into his dining room to show me the floorboards that had been replaced when the British army came through on their way to Bladensburg and burned his house. Wow. Or at least portions of it. So he also, and this is every homeowner knows this, uh, the ails of living, he came in one day and announced that the front of his house had fallen off. (laughs) (laughs) I, I see. Did he remedy this problem? He did. He also ran into some other problems. When we were out there one time, they had a pond on the property. To my understanding, the farm is the last intact land grant from the King of England. And it has not changed its Acreage since then. And originally, it was a property that was deeded in fee tail, which meant it had to go to the first male heir of the current owner. And in Maryland's Constitution, they abolished the fee tail in 1790 or 80 something. But his property continued to go to the first male heir for multiple, multiple generations. But it's a fun place because it's a throwback to you know, early times in Prince George's County.
0: One of the things that may be a little inside history is the prominent role that Prince George's County has played historically, that Howard County being a relative newcomer county may not have been around. But there's tremendous events that took place there, I even associated with the The Lincoln assassination, too, that people crept their way down there to get away and were aided and abetted by Prince George's Countians, as I recall.
1: They were. As a matter of fact, the port of entry to get from the south to the north in this region was through Charles County. And I read a book just limited to Maryland's role in the Civil War, and what is, unless you're really into the weeds of the Civil War, and I'm not that kind of a guy, uh, it was stunning to me to learn that Prince George's County, Charles County, and St. Mary's County, with the exception of a few counties on the Eastern shore had the largest slave populations in the state by far. And those counties were as deeply Southern as you could possibly imagine. Back then, and Maryland became this dividing line. Whereas, from the book anyway, when the Civil War was breaking out, Maryland was one of those states that was trying to decide which way they would go. And the Maryland legislature decamped from Annapolis and held the legislative session in Frederick, because Frederick and Howard County and the counties north had been settled by a number of, uh, of German waves of immigration, and they were virulently abolitionist. And so there was in Maryland, a very strong anti-slavery abolitionist movement there. So Maryland really kind of divided along that line, and Prince George's was going into the South. It is, uh, I had not intended to talk about history so much, but it is a fascinating
0: topic. And And noteworthy presently is that Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore is suddenly having to acknowledge that its founder, far from being an abolitionist, turned out to have been a slave owner, which is causing them considerable consternation and backtracking and that sort of thing.
1: Well, for those people that have read uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks know that one of the undercurrents in that book is the deep suspicion in the African-American community in Baltimore that Johns Hopkins experimented on African Americans in the basement and that's how Maryland became kind of a alternative place for those people to get care. They did not want to go to Hopkins.
0: One can't blame them given those circumstances. (laughs) Right. Also, I know from wandering around Baltimore that if you're on Federal Hill, You kind of see that the Union soldiers were implanted there to make sure the indigenous citizenry didn't help the South and that there were clashes with some regularity in Baltimore between the the Army of the Potomac, the Northern Army, and, and the
1: locals. Apparently, and I'm not a Civil War guy, but apparently one of the armies from Massachusetts was involved in a kind of a long transport down to join troops down here. And I think the end of their train ride was in Baltimore or close to Baltimore. And then they marched through the city and were attacked. And there was a a number of deaths that occurred. So these were Union troops firing on citizens in Baltimore.
0: You know, you really feel like Maryland became a part of the Union because the Army of the Potomac wouldn't let the countryside north of Washington, D.C. be otherwise, and that St. Mary's and Charles and Culver County all kind of went from being agricultural, we love slaves, to being unwilling participants in the Northern Experiment.
1: Right, exactly. And again, I'm not the Civil War guy, but my understanding was Lincoln acutely understood the importance of keeping Maryland on the Union side in terms of just keeping Washington in play and running government from Washington. Nobody wanted to have it being run from New York. And circling fully back
0: to our initial discussion of Prince George's County, the British crept up during the War of 1812 through Prince George's County, came into the city, burned down the White House and caused havoc And so I have a feeling Lincoln was learning from past experience.
1: (laughs) Right. They apparently went through Bladensburg and tore up Bladensburg well. So early Prince George's County uh, felt the pain of the British.
0: I also think that, and and I don't know whether this is silting or, and I, again, (laughs) hadn't intended a sort of discussion of harbors and stuff but th- there was a harbor at Bladensburg of some significance in that era, in the colonial era, that no longer, at least to my observation exists, but that may have been one of the reasons it had importance in that era that it has to a lesser degree now.
1: Right, and uh, my understanding that, and I'm not sure how it worked, but they had flat boats that were used to move cargo in around Upper Marlboro and down to Lower Marlboro and things of that sort, I don't know how you'd do that today because you'd run into silted blocked paths, but they kept it open. It was a, a waterway navigation.
0: So I was reviewing your biography and you, like my wife, went to the University of Maryland undergrad and then went to the law school there. You're a couple of years ahead of me coming out in 1978. But one of the things I've observed having my office primarily in Prince George's County for almost 40 years is the dramatic evolution of the county in its makeup and the density of its population and everything else, and undoubtedly you have observed this phenomenon as well. Definitely. It has been one of the most fascinating things for me to have come on the scene legally, and there was one African-American judge and now the majority of the judges on the circuit court for Prince George's County are African American. And it really speaks to an amazingly dramatic and for the most part peaceful transformation of what had been kind of an agrarian place to being a modern, vibrant place. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about that.
1: Well, on the tremendous good news front, the judiciary in Prince George's County reflects the population, and it didn't for a long time. And I 100% get that the large body of citizens in Prince George's County would get the feel that they weren't going to a place where they were going to get justice. Because the whole courthouse vibe was a white, organized, controlled and maintained uh, system and you know, that was the system I came from. I grew up in California. So the whole Maryland history thing is not something I grew up with or knew anything about and came to learn it as I became a young lawyer here. And it was eye-opening.
0: So how do you think that that was so successfully accomplished? I mean, is this something that is, we've had leaders with foresight? Is this judicial elections exist? So it isn't just an appointee of the governor or do you have any views on that?
1: Well, I think that Paris Glen Denning had a major impact in shift there. And having been the county executive in Prince George's County for eight years, you also had Wayne Curry who was in there. So, and I think legislative delegations became more empowered as the elected shift came in Prince George's County and more political power could be exerted on the governor to make the judiciary more reflect its citizenry, which I think is a super healthy thing.
0: Absolutely. For those in our audience who don't know who Paris Glendenning is, because his governorship probably terminated before they were born, he was not only the governor of the state of Maryland and the Prince George's County Executive, he was also a government and politics professor at the University of Maryland College Park, whom I took, you may well have during your era there, I don't know, but was really quite an influential figure in sort of a low-key way.
1: Very much so, and he made it his mission to change some of the status quo, and he did in a dramatic way.
0: It's also been fascinating to see Prince George's County go from being an agricultural place to being a place that has a tremendous amount of sort of modern technology industries and a place where the median income of the almost a million people is so much higher than it was back in the era when I started being a lawyer 40 years ago.
1: Yeah, and kind of the interesting... Byplay on that is that our law firm, as I was told by Jim Booker, my former law partner, is in the 60s. Builders came out and began to build out Sea Pleasant and all of those communities that became places where African American groups, not initially completely, but late, certainly later, could plant and have a home that wasn't out of reach for them economically at the time. So I think that the, like most cities in America, the build out of suburbia provided an opportunity for a bigger footprint for people to change the character of Prince George's County.
0: So let's just turn our attention briefly to your career. I mean, I always think of you as being at Sasser Clagen and perhaps you were born there, I don't know. And, you know, some of the older gentlemen who are no longer with us literally and otherwise retired, I clashed, you know, in a polite sort of old school Upper Marlboro way with them back in the days. But but how did you get started in the law? What brought you to the law? What keeps
1: you in the law? I grew up in outside of L.A. And then when I was just short of 16, went to a church high school in Philadelphia, And they had a boy's school and a girl's school. So your classes were entirely separate. One campus. So the girls and the boys got to socialize. And I met my wife in high school at that locale. She was from Linthicum Heights outside of Baltimore. Went to high school there. Went to, they have a college on that campus. I went there and then came back down here to Maryland. And when I was 19 and she was 20, we married, we're still married. That's wonderful. And I worked as a house painter and she finished her college. Then she went to work as a art director uh, in a nursing home. And she put me through college and then went to undergraduate. We lived outside the campus at the college park. And then went to law school and I when in law school having no connections and no contacts and didn't know how to work the whole system. I just wrote letters to law firms saying, I'm a young person in second year law school would like to work for you. And Audrey Melbourne in Laurel and her partners hired me out of, in second year law school, she became the first woman judge in Prince George's County. She was a brilliant, brilliant trial lawyer. And after she got on the bench, one of the other partners at the law firm, Phil Nichols, who became a circuit court judge, happened to have a medical malpractice case where he represented a physician who had no insurance, which was not normally the kind of case Phil would have. So I was a year out of law school, and had a chance to try a medical malpractice case with the senior partner at my current firm, Sasser Claggett, Charlie, Channing. That. Charlie Channing was oh, defending. Charlie. And when that case concluded, he offered me a job. And that's how I landed at Sasser Claggett to do the work that I've been doing for the rest of my legal career.
0: That's a fascinating little tale. I, you know, I'm just enough younger that I didn't know Audrey Melbourne until she was on the bench and, and was quite a character in that era. I remember talking about her horses and stuff. One of the things that was amazing about Upper Marlboro in that era is you really would come in and the judges would be talking about duck hunting or different things. And because my name Clark is common and there were some prominent lawyers named Clark, I remember them saying, well, how's your daddy, Bob? And kind of going (laughs) through this thing, how was his deer hunting? And of course, my father's never been deer hunting in his life. He was just a quiet intellectual who sat around and read all the time. But I was also cagey enough not to want to jinx my thing. And oh, my dad's fine, Judge So-and-so. And And it, it was just a different place in that era. And I mean, I'm glad of the transformation. And I have dear friends on the bench in Upper Marlboro and who've gone on to the appellate courts. And so I think it's for the better, but it was sort of a surreal experience. I I didn't know anybody. I'd gone to law school at the University of North Carolina. So I came up with no connections, wrote a couple letters, got a job. And the next thing I knew I was going to court. So, you know.
1: Well, my opportunities to connect with judges was because I had worked for Audrey Melbourne and I now work for Charlie Channing both of whom were well-loved social critters that had a kind of a comfort with all of the judges. So if you could just mention either one of those names, you kind of got in the door and that was my portal, not through charm or anything else, was you know just have a connection with those two well-loved people. One could do far worse. Yes. So
0: is it that you'd always wanted to be a lawyer? Did you stumble into lawyering? Tell us a little bit about the origins
1: of that. You know, i thought about that a lot because my kids have asked me and I don't know when a switch was tripped. And probably the one event that I can look at and say it cemented interest in the law was I went when I was an undergraduate at University of Maryland I took a course on business law. And it was kind of just a a wing it, because I was an American studies major. So I was studying American history and American literature, and I was very interested in American literature. I took this course, and I really enjoyed the challenges that that course, and it kind of locked me in saying, this is something that intellectually uh, really fits with my kind of mental framework.
0: So did you have any family history of lawyering?
1: I was the first to complete college in my family.
0: That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. You've done well with it. My father was a milkman.
0: You know, it's such an, an anachronistic sort of description of a profession. You <laughs> know, that it's when we were kids, there were milkmen. When my mother was raised, my grandfather was an ice man, that kind of stuff that you just... It seems inconceivable unless you see it in a movie.
1: Yeah, which makes me harken back to when we went out to Hal Claggett's farm way back in the day, they had an outside location in the ground and they would have one of those ice cutters come in, cut the pond ice off and put the ice in this underground area where they would also put fruits and vegetables. And according to Hal, it would stay in the 40s to low 50s in that throughout the summertime. So the wow. kids would all beat it down there to cool off in the hot, humid Maryland summers. So an ice cutting tradition is a good one.
0: No, it, it is. It served my grandfather well. He had seven kids with that successfully. So, you know, And that was during the Depression. So that was things were sort of rough. Yeah. So how do you like being a lawyer?
1: I like it. So I've spent my whole life being a litigator, as you have you, and there's, in a way, less rewards with litigation, I think, than a lot of other lawyering where you can really, really help people. I have had litigation cases where they were extremely rewarding. You know, I've done basically defense work most of my legal career, but there was one occasion where a family came to me who's daughter was delivering christmas gifts a few days before christmas to a fire station and in charles county went through a green traffic light and was struck by a charles county police officer and killed oh gosh so charles county blamed her for going through the light that she didn't stop because there were lights and sirens and and so forth and that was a case where as you know because of this Maryland State Government uh, Tort Claims Act had limitations on your recovery. They were never going to get compensated for the death of their daughter, and they didn't care. And as a matter of fact, we ultimately got a settlement in that case, that and they gave every penny away. But just to show you how egregious as we developed the facts and found out what really happened, I as the plaintiff filed a motion for summary judgment on liability and it was granted. Wow. And we were able to show that this, although Charles County had blamed her for coming into the intersection, the police officer had been called off pursuit, was going 90 miles an hour, had come through this light and interestingly learned that in uh, foggy conditions, the sound of a siren winds up being behind the vehicle when it gets a north of 80 miles an hour. So she literally could not have heard and did not see this approaching police car when she entered the intersection. So there was no contributory negligence on her part, and it was just an egregious cowboy move by them. So those are one of those rare situations where This family who was grieving and didn't and felt like their daughter died and was being accused for causing the accident, something needed to be set right. And those are the rare times where you really feel like you did something. Whereas most of the time in personal injury litigation, it's just an end result and it's about money. And it really isn't, for me, a lot of reward that gets attached to that. You do a good job and you want your clients to be satisfied and feel like you gave them the best representation available to you, but not a lot of kind of emotional reward in a lot of what we do. There is a lot of emotional or more emotional reward in doing things that's kind of outside of litigation. And I am also working As general counsel for a college Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. And I got myself admitted in Pennsylvania to do that. Good for you. You know, they're facing issues involving the pandemic and all kinds of things. And everybody's facing in the same direction and want to accomplish the same result. That's very different from litigation, where people are oppositional with each other. And Having kind of everyone trying to get to the same place, although people can disagree how to get there, but people want the same results is a much more satisfying on a regular basis than litigation can serve. Don't mean to seem grumpy about the work that I do. I'm happy to do it. But in terms of kind of what keeps me going more and more as I've gotten older, it's trying to make people feel like you've made a difference for them.
0: That's a beautiful sentiment, and unfortunately, we are nearing the conclusion of this segment discussing (laughs) Phil Zuber and his contributions to the legal community. I would like to thank you because despite the fact that we are, for all intents and purposes, on the opposite side of the coin in litigation, although I don't remember whether we've ever really litigated a case, that you are a person who has always been so straightforward and honest and knowledgeable that my law partner, Alan Steinhorn, who's been a frequent guest on this show, and I, when we scratch our head and don't know what else to do, we say, know, well, let's call Phil Zuber and see what he has to say. And I just personally wanna thank you for your assistance, that there's this kind of assumption by clients, I think, that lawyers know what they're doing all the time and know the answers to every question. And I've been doing this not quite as long as you, but it'll be 40 years in May. And there are just times, even to this day, where I'm not quite sure what the best path is or what even all the alternatives are. And you have helped clarify that a great deal. And I'd just like to thank you personally for
1: that, Phil. Well, thank you, Bob. And I should also say it is the collegiality of our profession that is also a great reward. And having those conversations and talking about the law and what we can do and how to do things is another joy that we all, I think, feel when we can have professional collegial conversations and you and others really uh, help bring that joy I think to lots of people well thank you Phil
0: this has been Every Day Long I'm your host Bob Clark have a great week and happy holidays thank you
1: thanks Bob connect with us we are Dragon Digital Radio